0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, speakers, contestants, and marathon goers. M Relay has become M Pavilion's or one of M Pavilion's signature events. M Pavilion, initiated by the Naomi Milgram Foundation, is Melbourne's cultural experiment in the park that pushes the boundaries for design and architecture. The M Pavilion, designed by Amanda Levitt of ALA, was recently nominated by Design Boom, one of the top 10 temporary structures worldwide. It sits alongside the Serpentine Pavilion in London by Salgas Cano, the UK Pavilion at Expo Milan by Wolfgang Buttress, and the Euro Pavilion in Paris by Kengo Kuma. In that same breath, to help us explore ideal and perfect places, the Utopia session host tonight, the director of the Wheeler Centre and ABC's Blueprint for Living host, Michael Williams.
1: Thank you very much and good evening, everyone. Um, I am mindful coming into the last leg of a relay feels like an intensely lazy act. Can I get a show of hands? How many of you have been here for the duration? I want to see some. Uh, this corner. This this corner is the stairs. And how many of you are just arriving for the first time? Excellent, well, you are in for a treat because in the relay concept, the M Pavilion has hit upon something truly wonderful and more than a little utopian in its own way. If we take utopia as a particularly platonic ideal, then what more utopian spirit than a relay of conversation where we pass between poets and architects, dancers and thinkers of all different types Uh, From now into the wee hours of the morning, or at least a couple of hours' time, where we hear from each of them on what utopia means in each of their lives. Now, not for nothing has the word utopia been used as the name of two major cultural products in Australia in the past couple of years. The first is the John Pilger's uh, 2013 film, Utopia, which took its name from the Northern Territory community uh, that it looked at, but used its name as a point of deep and tragic irony. Utopia in Australia is a meaningless concept if we can't, at the same time, understand our present day and understand our past. And with that in mind, I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nations and pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the elders and members of other communities who may be with us today. Uh, As I like to note when I do an acknowledgement of country, for me, this acknowledgement is in part an acknowledgement that the moral and legal implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day. As Australians, we can't talk about utopia without thinking of that. But, of course, the other great cultural output in Australia that bears the name utopia is the Working Dog series of that name. And there they use the word utopia with a sense of deep despair and cynicism. We talk about nation-building, we talk about utopia, only to get around having to talk about anything meaningful. We talk about these things because we can't talk about the difficult questions about what's going on today. And I think tonight we have an extraordinary lineup who aren't going to fall into that trap. They will talk about utopia uh, as it pertains to their own work, as it pertains to the kind of society that we want to live in, and as it pertains to the kind of society that we're in at this point in time. I'd like to briefly run through the biographical notes of each of our distinguished panellists so we don't have to slow down the relay once they come up. Kicking things off in a moment, I'm going to interview Natalie King. She's an M Pavilion creative associate, which makes it a deeply corrupt uh, guest of this evening's proceedings, but it means that I'm going to have to go extra hard hitting. She's also the curator of the Tracy Moffat exhibition at the Venice Art Biennale 2017. Big round of applause for Natalie. Following that, once she escapes my clutches, she'll be interviewing Jeremy McLeod, who's a partner at Breathe, leading the wave of sustainable architecture. Who better than an architect to talk about Utopia? Big round of applause for Jeremy. Then having been interviewed himself, I think you can see how this is going, he will then turn to interview Becky Hilton. Becky's a teacher, choreographer, dancer and performer. Round of applause for Becky Hilton. I'm getting you used to this. This is a rolling thing. There's applause. Just just keep going for the rest of the evening. I would have thought when Becky interviews Rufus Black, who's the Master of Ormond College at the University of Melbourne, he's a strategic advisor, ethicist and theologian. So I think his utopia may be loftier than many of the others we hear this evening. Round of applause for Rufus Black. Rufus will then interview Aurelia Guo, who I just heard confess that she's been watching The Wire all day. Uh, She's a writer and accomplished poet who writes poetry in response to the exhibitions she attends. Big round of applause for her. She'll then interview Atelier Ten's Managing Director, Paul Stoller. Big round of applause for Paul. Who will interview medical anthropologist, Gregory Phillips. Big round of applause for Gregory who will then ask me what on earth I was thinking and we'll finish the evening. So that's the drill, that's the lineup, they're the people you get to hear from. Ladies and gentlemen, Natalie King. Excellent. Look, the other nice thing about this format is. Uh, six or seven times this evening you get to see people not know how to use a microphone Um, and that is exciting I think you'll agree Natalie Utopia I I named those two other pieces of Australian cultural output that took uh, took the name Utopia for their inspiration but you've done a bit of that yourself uh, with the project that you did with AsiaLink tell us a bit about why that project had Utopia attached to its name
2: I guess I've been inspired by utopian thinking for some time now. I thought it might be helpful to start with the etymology of the word utopia, which comes from the Greek, and it means nowhere and no place. So, in fact, utopia doesn't exist. It's hypothetical. It's imaginary. And the first person to use the term utopia was Thomas More, who in 1516 wrote a treatise called utopia, where he spoke about this sense of being bountiful and plentiful, where everyone had everything. So we might like to think about utopia as a, an oasis, um, a nirvana, uh, a euphoric place, and this kind of thinking has, in some ways, informed uh, the work that I do, but also reminds us of our current condition, which is often dystopic, which is what you referenced before, I think that we live in extremely tumultuous um, times, times of turmoil, times of violence, times of uncertainty. And I experienced this personally a couple of weeks ago when I was in Jakarta curating an exhibition and experienced the bombings in very close proximity to my hotel. So I think that utopia can be defined um, in terms of its counterpart, uh, dystopia. But getting back to the work that I did at AsiaLink, I was, um, I worked at AsiaLink, which is part of the University of Melbourne from 2010 till 2014. And I was the director of a new initiative called Utopia. And it was a pan-Asian incubator, and an alliance of partners who were working across Asia from Singapore, um, India, Korea, Japan, and Australia, to try and uh, search for new modalities of working uh, in ways that are inclusive, that are non-hierarchical, that are generative. And
1: yes? I'm going to interrupt you briefly and ask, why is that a utopian pursuit? Why is that not just to use uh, the language of the day, best practice, rather than, you know, utopian, if it's of no place, as you say from Thomas More, Mm -hmm. Um, This is a project that's grounded in place and trying to kind of work around place. What was it, do you think, in the conception of that, that was seen as being so abstract as to be utopian?
2: Mm. I guess we were trying to find... I don't know if we ever achieved it. We tried to find new modalities. So that was... Our guiding principle was being um, inclusive Uh, very generative, about conversations that were open and unfolding. And some of these ideas have very much infiltrated the way that the team works at M Pavilion. Um, We try and extend conversations um, beyond ourselves into many communities and many localities and generate them from M Pavilion. So this kind of thinking can be a very common thread. But I just wanted to make one other reference. There was a very significant exhibition that uh, influenced me in 2003 at the Venice Biennale, and it was called Utopia Station. And it was curated by Hans Ulrich Obrist, uh, Molly Nesbitt, and Rikri Tiruvaneja, the Thai artist. And it was was many things. It was a low platform where there were uh, readings, there were recitals, there were artworks, uh, there were performances. Uh, You could sleep there, you could bathe there, you could powder your nose there so it was this you know we're interested at um, M Pavilion and in the work that I've done in spaces that are porous that are open and that offer many things to many people
1: to what extent do you think a curator needs to be an optimist
2: Uh, you know I don't know why I'm thinking about words, maybe because you're at the Wheeler (laughs) Centre. But the word uh, curator comes from the word curare, which means to care. And as a curator, you have many roles, but one of your main roles is to care for artists and ideas. And artists are the guardians of imagination.
1: So you're an optimist, personally?
2: Well, I like to have a sense of hope and... It's come up already today um, with Rebecca Coates. Many of us have been reading over summer Oliver Sacks' On The Move and his beautiful little book, Gratitude. And Oliver Sacks, from childhood, developed an attachment to the periodic table. And every year he was attached to the element that related to his birthday year. So when it was four, it was beryllium. And when he was 82, he was looking at bismuth, which is apparently a very obscure element that no one knows of, but he never reached 83. But the prospect of bismuth and his attachment to it filled him with encouragement and hope. What
1: relationship then do you think, because I understand that desire to care for the art and the artist and the fact that that is an inherently, um, to my mind, an inherently optimistic act, what relationship what responsibility does art have to the society that it belongs to then? Can you care for it in a vacuum or is it partly about that striving for the better society?
2: Look, I've had these conversations with some colleagues at the City of Melbourne who I can see in the <laughs> back row there. I mean, Local government I people believe that, in change. I don't see that art That's necessarily that. should instrument instrumentalise or be didactic. I think art can evoke, inspire, cajole, incite um, It can do many things in, in many ways. Um, and I'm very excited to be have worked on M Pavilion and now working on the Venice Biennale Pavilion. And it's interesting that to me at this point in my career that I'm working across two pavilions in gardens. The Venice Biennale is in the Giardini and what it might mean for audiences to be in a pavilion, uh, to curate in a pavilion, You know, we think about day and night, light and dark, how to occupy a space, have it open, closed. There are many things that we're all thinking about.
1: I'm interested in the relationship between those two pavilions and those two roles, where in one of them you're lucky enough, and I'm speaking of the M pavilion here, to be involved in building something from the ground up. So utopian vision can partly drive it because it's the identification of something that's lacking and a kind of almost a blank slate, if I can refer to Melbourne in those terms, uh, in in terms of what you're going to do with it. Whereas doing the pavilion at the Venice Biennale, you must be overwhelmed by the weight of tradition and what's come before how do you approach it differently in terms of your own practice
2: well firstly I'm not overwhelmed at all um, <laughs> good
1: good to hear you got the job
2: I, I'm <laughs> fortunate enough to go I'll be going to Venice with Naomi Milgram the commissioner and Tracy Moffat the artist in March uh, I haven't seen the pavilion yet so I'm going with an open mind and an open attitude um, I'm not daunted because I think we're building a really strong team, um, and there'll be a sense of um, urgency to the whole project. And I can't reveal too much more. It's it's in the very early stages of.
1: Development. So okay, if you resist the idea of being overwhelmed by the past, how do yeah. you how do you build an awareness of what's come before in your own kind of vision for the new things you want to create?
2: Well, I think it's important to state that Tracy Moffat is the first in artist artists to have a solo exhibition in the Australian Pavilion. That is very significant. The um, curator for the overall visual arts section, uh, Christine Marcel, who has just been appointed um, following on from Okwi and Rizor, uh, she's a chief curator at the Pompidou. She is the fourth woman in 122 years to be curating that section. So I feel like I'm in very good company.
1: I think you are. I think that's fair to say. I want to come back then again to that relationship between art and a vision for a utopia and a utopian society. If art doesn't have, as you say, a responsibility to kind of be didactic or to change or whatever else, wh- where does it sit in your vision for a utopian future?
2: I mean, I think some artists are interested in utopian principles, uh, in world making, in otherworldliness, in... Um, imagining new possibilities but some artists are not some artists interrogate um, place and the problems of the world that we live in so I'm open to many different kinds of practices
1: What do you hope to achieve? You mentioned your work with the city of Melbourne how, how does that play out? Like I'm not asking for <laughs> indiscretion but I would have thought um, with the greatest will in the world and you mentioned they're here so I don't want to sound rude but the Priorities of local government and the priorities of an artistic curator could sometimes be at odds. Are are there points of tension there?
2: Um, To be honest, not really, because I think often my role is to cajole. And fortunately, I'm working outside of the bureaucracy of the City of Melbourne and my colleague is agitating from within. And hopefully the two of us are finding ways to navigate the bureaucracy, I I tend to avoid bureaucracies, but just simply um, I should just quickly outline the project. It's called uh, the Biennial Lab and it's a suite of temporary interventions in the city of Melbourne. I'm lucky enough to have been appointed chief curator. And the Biennial Lab is in two nodes. The first component will comprise a, a workshop or a summit for 10 artists with guest uh, faculty and internationals coming in to interrogate a particular site. And I'm... I hope I can say this now. I'm very excited to have secured the site of Queen Victoria Market, which is has an astonishing history. Do you it, want to check
1: if you're allowed to yeah, say it oh before I've we go any okay, further? Um, like so
2: the, the site... Um, was established in 1878, and it has a really interesting history of um, shootouts, racketeering, racketeering, um, but very significantly, um, under the car park was Melbourne's first cemetery. And it's thought that um, the Aboriginal resistance fighters from Tasmania, Tanaminawe and Mabohina, are buried there. So it has a, a real sense of a ghostly presence. And of course, the whole kind of mercantile food, Uh, situation, I think will be very interesting for artists. So there'll be the lab, and then six months later, um, a suite of eight commissions will be realised in October.
1: Hmm. I just want to check with the assembled audience, and maybe this is a, a false assumption, but can I get a show of hands, how many of you consider yourselves optimists? It's very oh, heartening. That's
2: why they're here. <laughs> that, is, that
1: is a room that is more than half full, uh, whichever way you look at it, uh, of optimists. People who believe that change is possible, that things are going to get better one way or the other. Do you, um, do you believe that about the cultural scene in this country?
2: Um, I suppose I think of utopia as less of a destination but an attitude, a consciousness a state of mind, which is clearly pervasive here.
1: I guess uh, the, the interesting thing about that and about utopia and going back to the Thomas More is it's the non-existence of the place that's the crucial thing in the way More writes about it. It's actually not about the goodness of the society or the, the virtue of it. That reading of it and understanding of it came kind of later. It's about the fact that it is unachievable and unattainable. Is that...
2: I agree. I think utopia is thinking is about um, an artistic endeavor is about proposing things that aren't there yet.
1: Excellent. Well, with that in mind, I think I'm going to let you handball across to interview our next guest, which is Jeremy McLeod, who's going to make his way up to the stage now. I'm going to hover in the wings and. Uh, if I can, you know, help out in any way, or be a, a, an interference. Um, and the other thing I'd like to say is, you're all clearly engaged utopians at heart as well. If there's a point <coughs> in the conversation where you want to join in, this shouldn't be. A <coughs> stage, wave your hand around, and the people on the stage would welcome. <coughs> <coughs> gentlemen, Natalie King.
3: Little tough to get Michael off the microphone.
2: Thanks, Michael. You've always been a bit loquacious. Jeremy. Hi, Natalie. Hi. <laughs> Breathe architecture. Breathing breath. Architecture is solid, sturdy, firm. It's about spatial coordinates. Why are you oxygenating architecture? Is this utopian?
3: I should actually admit that I'm incredibly embarrassed about the name Breathe Architecture. <laughs> One of my teenage daughter's friends <laughs> said to me, it's so pretentious that you called your firm Breathe Architecture. And at the time, I called it Breathe Architecture for two reasons. Um, one thing that I, that I didn't want to do was name it Jeremy McLeod Architecture. I didn't want it to be about me. Um, I wanted it to be about the possibility that it could be anything. And secondly, I was working... The last project I worked on before I left a large office of 50 architects to start my own practice, I spent the last six weeks of my work after doing my undergrad in environmental design um, doing a car park and um, that was the last six weeks of my work in that office. And um, Every apartment above level 30, the windows didn't open because the the negative wind pressure on on the leeward side of the building would apparently suck the furniture out of the apartment or something. (laughs) I, I, I don't know. Um, some of my fellow architects here today, is that true? (laughs) That's what we were told. I I think that the developer just thought it was cheaper not to put openable windows. So um, when I established Breathe Architecture, I decided that we would have a simple rule, which was that every room would have a window and each of those windows would open. So you could breathe.
2: (laughs) We've thought about this in terms of M Pavilion as well and um, Amanda Lovett has (laughs) talked about the importance of flow and breeze and having this particular architecture very open to the environment and the elements. But you mentioned before um, subsuming your ego and your name um, with your architecture firm and I'm wondering if collaboration might be a guiding utopian principle in your practice.
3: Well, it's interesting that you're interviewing me, and then I'm interviewing Becky. So Becky's um, a contemporary dancer, so we're going to see how much I know about contemporary dance pretty soon. Um, we might ask her to bust some moves out. No? Um, she choreographs, so maybe so maybe you guys could dance and she could choreograph. Um, but in your work, you curate. So you work with artists, you collaborate with artists. In your work, you collaborate with dancers. And I guess... You know, I'm an architect, so theoretically, we just draw the things and then someone else does all the work. And um, so, so, of course, we collaborate with builders, plumbers, tradesmen, subcontractors, all of those things. But importantly, um, as an architect, you know, I, I, I studied architecture because... Well, there's a longer story about why I studied architecture, but I'll give you the, the cliff notes, which is, I studied architecture because I thought I could make a difference. I studied architecture because I thought I could build sustainable homes for people to live in, and um, and when I signed my you know architects registration papers for the state of Victoria, um, my code of ethics says that I serve um, that I serve three three masters. So I have three clients. I have the client that pays for me. I have the the client that lives in the building, so the end user. And then we have the broader client, which is the community that the building exists within. And that's not just, you know, um, downtown Brunswick, but that's the global community. And the thing is that all architects are bound by that code of ethics. So I have this innate um, faith and trust in architects that they actually care about the city and the occupants of the city and the occupants of the greater community. So I like to collaborate with architects. I trust them. So, yeah, I I like to collaborate.
2: That's interesting because often architects are seen as a very singular undertaking. But I'm interested if you could discuss uh, the Nightingale model (laughs) and explain it to people. Another intriguing title.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, so, so... Uh, The thing about Nightingale, and I'll talk about the title first. Again, you know, the thing with names. So um, I've got some neighbours over here that came with me tonight. So I live in this building called The Commons in Brunswick. And my neighbours live with me. And they lent me this book on Florence Nightingale. So the interesting thing about Florence Nightingale is that she wasn't just a nurse. She totally reformed the British healthcare system. So she was looking after um, servicemen. Um, and and the, the level of care that they were receiving was um, was so bad that the hospitals were catastrophically failing. So people were getting sicker coming into hospitals. So rather than just looking at it and being doing what she was told, she rewrote entire medical systems. The idea of the Nightingale Project, which started in Melbourne with a collaboration between Breathe Architecture and six other architects, is about reimagining the housing delivery system in Melbourne. So currently housing is delivered, I say housing, it's actually referred to um, in, the, in the industry as product. So product is delivered um, through an apartment delivery system and it's sold um, by property developers to investors to then be rented for as much as possible. So it's an economic system, it's a commodity market. And Nightingale is a housing project. So it's led by architects, It's a triple bottom line, replicatable housing project, which the IP is open source, so any architect anywhere in the world can replicate what we're doing here. And the idea is that we deliver quality, sustainable, affordable housing that people want to live in, that they're engaged while they live there, they're engaged with their broader community. It brings joy to people. It makes people healthier and happier. And, um, and yeah, look, the idea is that I guess we think naively that we might be able to change the system. We're going to break it, remake it. That's the idea.
2: Have you been influenced by utopian schemes or architects from the twenties and thirties, like Le Corbusier or so, Frank Lloyd White, Right. Uh,
3: so Le Corbusier, um, you know, and his modernist counterparts had some incredible ideas about utopian society and how to build a utopian city and i think if you think about that idea of utopia so um tam and i my my wife and i were talking about this over the last couple of days and this idea of utopia as perfection you know how do you live in something that's perfect and um you know we live in brunswick which is so imperfect it's incredible and um and, and if i think about the spaces that i go in that are so curated, that everything's perfect, everything's handled, I feel incredibly uneasy. You know, I need a level of chaos around me to feel like it's real. Um, you know, and, I, and then when I look back at, you know, um, what Le Corbusier proposed in 1925, which was to demolish Paris, rebuild um, a gridded uh, 60-storey residential towers... Each tower holding 2,700 residents, um, and and it was great that you know it was it was Le Corbusier's machine for living. You know it would have a daycare center, it would have um, employment, it would have all these opportunities. Everything would be done for you. But when you look at it now, it looks like something by Hitler's architect. It looks like Albert Speer's designed, redesigned Paris. It's it's kind of horrendous and terrifying. So um, and my other. There's some other kind of kooky utopian city ideas, like Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome that's Mm -hmm. filled with hot air that floats above mountains. That would be good. Um, (laughs) There's the vegetarian city. So there's lots of vegetarians at the Commons, so we could all make the vegetarian city. So in 1856, there was a utopian vegetarian city designed, um, and it was all based on octagons, because apparently octagons um, let in the most light. Um, (laughs) so anyway they built one octagon log cabin and then no one (laughs) moved in and the vegetarian city utopian city failed but my personal favorite is booze city so (laughs) proposed by some kook in the states in in the 50s and it was so i guess you know utopia is about how how you see utopia so for alcoholics booze city would be awesome so no children allowed in booze city Um, and he he spent two years trying to raise funds to build this place. And um, there would be police, but they wouldn't arrest you. Instead, they would come and give you aspirin and gently take you back to your hotel room. (laughs) So that never got off the ground. So a lot of utopian cities... Are failures. um, Are failures. So failures in concept, looking back at them in the cold light of day, or failures in execution. So one of the big firms I was working at um, in the 90s delivered this, you know, utopian kind of megacity in, um, in Thailand. And uh, it was ten towers repeated on this grid, and it's a ghost town now. It's, um, it's frightening and it's sad.
2: What do you think are some of the utopian uh, design or architectural initiatives that you think could transform parts of Melbourne
3: so can I talk about... Yeah, okay. So now, now I should probably talk about what Nightingale is. Can I talk about that? Yes, okay. Of course. So this is, this is probably why I was invited to come tonight to talk about um, Nightingale. So I'm going to talk about Nightingale. Um, and if, if we talk about, you know, I guess dystopia first, and obviously I have an issue with the way that a housing product is delivered in our city that I love which is why I'm so incredibly grateful to Naomi for putting this pavilion up for us and and having these discussions and talking about our city. But I'm not happy with where we are at the moment in terms of housing provision. You know, I think it's designed for the few to make money off the many. And Nightingale intends to change all of that. And I guess, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? (laughs) Because can I think you, can I just you just
2: <laughs> explain how Nightingale is a utopian enterprise? A yeah, model.
3: okay. Well, look, I, I think the fundamental idea about Nightingale, at the core of everything, is really about the people that live there. So one of the things that we've learned from... We, we built a prototype a couple of years ago called The Commons, which has 24 apartments, 47 residents. And um, we won 14 architecture awards in 2014 for this building, and we were surprised by that. But... When I asked my wife six months ago could we move out and move into Nightingale, the second prototype, the better version of the Commons, she said no way, I'm not leaving the Commons and I was really chuffed because I thought that, you know, she she loved my architecture so much that she didn't <laughs> want to leave it but then she tells me, oh, it's not about the building, it's about my neighbours and so what's what's been incredible about living with 47 other people at the Commons is that the friendships that I've Gained there, like, are now my closest circle of friends. So I've gained, you know, 10 new friends that I'm incredibly close with. Um, you know, we go on holidays together. So we live together and then we go on holidays together. Like, it's tragic. It's a little bit cultish. But um, what it's shown me is that, you know, I'm super busy in my work. I get disconnected from society and then I kind of get reconnected and grounded back at home. So um, I think that. What Nightingale really offers, you know, it's not about, you know, an architectural aesthetic or a particular construction method that's super sustainable. It's actually about the ability to provide people with what they want and I guess to encourage those people to come together in in in, in a sense of community in a time when you know modern isolation seems to be all around us, like it on a train lately.
1: Natalie, can I interrupt for a minute? Uh, to make two brief points. One is that there's a pre-programmed thing that happens at sunset here in the M Pavilion uh, which is one of those utopian visions that doesn't quite connect to people talking on a stage <laughs> in a seamless relay thing so in a moment we're going to have to get these two off the stage so that we can get an alternate lighting thing but I just wanted to chip in with a quick question to Jeremy about failed utopias and ask what happened when Nightingale met with VCAT <laughs> how, how does utopia fit with reality there uh. Yeah, uh, so
3: um, as some of you might have read in, um, in The Age, um, so, so Nightingale is this aspirational housing model and um, it's incredibly engaged. It started with 11 people approaching us after the end of the Commons saying, can you do another building like the Commons? Our wait list has grown from 11 people to 800 people. We had this um, incredible kind of engagement with those people that are gonna live in the building. So we interviewed 57 people. We asked them what it was that they wanted in the building. We took aggregated results from those surveys, amended the design to suit those results, lodged an amended planning application. When we lodged our planning application, we had three objections and 177 letters of support. When we went to Moreland to go to the Urban Planning Committee meeting, there were over 100 people that turned up in support of the building. They had to move all the furniture out of the gallery to let supporters in for this thing. Like, it was crazy town. Um, We got um, a planning permit from Moreland, or a notice of decision to grant a permit, and we had this rapturous um, cheer through the Moreland City Council, and we all kind of partied. And then three weeks later, the developer next door took us to VCAT with a well-funded VCAT challenge. They employed a, a better lawyer and a bigger traffic engineering company and they derailed the Nightingale utopia because we're right next to a train station. We provided 72 bike parks but no cars, God forbid. So where are we at? We, we relodged our planning application three days after our refusal and we're
1: going to try it all again. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy McLeod. (laughs) Big round of applause. (laughs) Jeremy, I'm very sorry to leave that on a slightly pessimistic note. So while there's a bit of uh, stagecraft, quite literally, going on here, can you just, does that um, slightly disappointing kind of real-world response to your utopian vision in any way uh, lessen your determination to get it out? So I spent two days rocking backwards and forwards in the shower
3: because um, it's, it's like, from start to finish, from the start of the Commons up till now, it's been seven years. Um, and we've put a lot of our uh, emotional um, energy into it. But at the end of that, no, not at all. You know, we've redoubled our, our efforts. Um, and what's happened is it's, it's and, and you would well know this, that it's it, it sparked this debate around the decoupling of car, private car ownership and housing. And so there's actually a hashtag that exists out there saying housing people, not cars. So, you know, check it out. But basically what it means is that Gen Ys are living differently than our bureaucracy or our planning scheme understands. So 30% of the people that we interviewed for Nightingale either don't own a car, have never owned a car, or have never had a Victorian driver's license. In fact, Kate and Jace, have you guys ever driven? Do you know how to drive? Okay, Jase knows how to drive, but I've never seen him drive. So, um, and trying to explain that to a bureaucratic system that says you have to provide a car park to all of these people, even though it pushes the apartment prices up by $40,000 per apartment, these people don't own a car. They don't... um, Kate can't drive. And they don't want to pay $35,000 to have uh, some line marking on some concrete. And in fact, I doubt whether they could stretch to do that. So um, what it's done is it's, it's it's sparked this debate. So now Richard Wynne, the planning minister, has been talking about it. The city of Moorland have asked um, Richard Wynne to reassess planning strategy throughout Moorland. So it, it hurt Nightingale 1, but I think it's actually, at, at a much bigger scale, It sparked a much more important discussion.
1: There is, though, and I've already been accused of being a loquacious one, so I'm not going to go on at this, but there is a problem in building a utopia when our society is so... And modified and fragmented that you 're quite right about people 's driving habits, but if public transport uh, services aren 't increased to areas, then uh, it actually doesn't kind of doesn 't follow through. You need help at every level of government, surely to bring your vision to fruition at any level of government would be good <laughs> any at all, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Becky Hilton. <laughs>
3: So, I don't don't know a lot about contemporary dance, so I've prepared some questions. Feel free to help me. Oh,
4: it's very
3: theatrical. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You'd be used to that.
4: Um, Probably lots of people here don't know anything about contemporary dance, would I be right? So, you're not alone.
3: (laughs) Question number one. What is contemporary dance?
4: He did give me a bit of a heads up, so I, I have no excuse um, for hedging this question. Contemporary dance is, uh, well, contemporary means now, so it's a dance of now. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's about, um, I, you know what, I think they, they, they went too early with postmodernism that we're not act- that all dance is contemporary. In fact, of its time, so it's kind of a crazy. It's, it's like saying contemporary dance. architecture. Do you say contemporary architecture, or do you just contemporary say architecture? contemporary 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 contemporary?
3: <laughs> it's new contemporary architecture. New
4: contemporary. <laughs>
3: no, I'm just making that up.
4: <laughs> um, but basically, now contemporary dance is a, is is anything. It's about kind of context shifting, including. Um, taking it from the theatre, kind of rejecting kind of modernist principles somehow or, you know, so it's more, it's, it's everything and anything. In fact, someone was talking about that earlier, Natalie. So that really didn't help, did it? No, no, it,
3: it does help and we'll talk a about bit in help. detail about help, I know. But I do. think it's
4: a... Di- I have something else to say before you get your next question out. Uh, I think... I think that it's a whole different thing. It's hard to talk about it. If you if you could talk about it and explain it or write about it or you wouldn't need to do it. It's in fact a, a kind of different ontology, maybe. Yeah. A different way of experiencing the world. And I think that's why there's this whole thing about people don't get it. It makes people very anxious. It's you're like you're looking at it like, but I don't know what they're doing. Like you know, and, and like anything, there's a lot of terrible contemporary dance. Like you know, it's like anything. There's loads of awful architecture.
5: <laughs> yeah.
4: There's piles of heinous contemporary dance. So but um
3: so we don't have to like it all.
4: No, in fact, I think it's a good opportunity to to let yourself not think about like or don't like. I think contemporary dance actually can offer you that that you look at it. We've all got a body. We all have experience of our body. You know, it's like you're maybe it's an opportunity to think about your body just as much as you're thinking about that moving body somehow. Mm. Maybe it offers that empathy, that opportunity for empathy, which is very utopian.
6: Yeah.
4: Bringing it back to the topic. Theory. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get there.
3: I'll get there. So question number two. Why is dance so important I'm going to really regret society? not having questions
4: for Rufus. <laughs> so I was just going to jam, but no. He's a, right.
3: a, a theologian, he'll just, you know... That's true. He'll cover it. Right.
4: He'll
3: cover the big questions. So why is dance important in our society?
4: Well, you know, I don't know.
3: It's, hard, it's, hard, it's not a commodity, is it? You can't make money from it.
4: Well... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this will put it in some context for you. The rich people in contemporary dance are teachers. Yeah. <laughs> that gives you a little frame. So no... You can't make money from it, but maybe that's what it offers this super neoliberal, insane capitalist, crazed you know world we're existing in right now. The fact that it that it is something that you can't buy it and put it away so it can increase in value and then get it out later and sell it for millions of dollars. It's completely about a shared. So experience. it can't it can't be corrupted. Well, yeah, I mean, we're kind of a, on a moral uh, high ground, but without trying, really. It's just that nobody's really that interested in it.
3: And I've got... I've got um, so the theme that we were talking about before, about this idea of collaboration, mm-hmm. can you talk about that? Because when I le- looked at your bio and then I went and did Poor some thing, research on also, you, yeah. you kind of worked with obviously numerous um, Melbourne dance companies, not just dancing, but also... Choreography, and um, and now you're working with a Mexican crew. I, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I've
4: done a yeah a, a project with a company in Mexico that was yeah interesting. Good. <laughs>
3: yeah. So can you tell us about collaboration? Why it's important? Why yeah. it works? And yeah. then can you tell us a little bit about the Mexican thing because uh, hello sounds very very interesting.
4: Yeah, I can. Um, well, dance is is collaboration. Like it's not. It's a there's a hierarchical system, maybe inside it somehow, in terms of there's someone who has the idea, who conceives of it, who's the choreographer, who takes responsibility for it. But once you get into the studio, it is completely collaborative because it's my idea, but it's your body. You know, I don't get to kind of go. Mm, mm, mm. I try. Everybody tries to I've, be like I've not seen like you on YouTube that. Doing not that. like that, Jeremy. <laughs> That's terrible. Not like that, you you know. Choreographers try to, but ultimately, it's your dance because you're doing it. I'm, I'm framing it. I'm trying to. I come up with themes and ideas and ways to work with the theme. But ultimately, you're the performer. You have the power. Like the, it's a real triangle dance in that way. It's, and the only. and the link is, is the performer. So it's the choreographer's relationship to the performer, the performer's relationship to the audience. It's only through the performer that the choreo- choreographer's work gets to be realised. So it's super collaborative all the way through. In fact, when I was a dancer a long time ago, a performer, not so long ago, uh, I loved that moment when... the the process was over, we'd got through all the kind of authorship issues, because there are a lot of those. Because you're telling me what to do with my body. Oh, I just flipped, so you're the choreographer now. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Dance is like I'll, that. I got it. <laughs> um, but it's mine. You know, you're telling me what to do. But I, once I'm on that stage, I'm making a series of choices in relationship to actual time and actual space and actual communicativity, did I make that word up? Yep. Um, I loved that moment. I was just a, crazy for that moment as a, as a young artist, where it, where it got to really be mine. And so... All it, care, it, no responsibility, because if it was shitty, it was the choreographer's fault.
3: <laughs> but in, in terms of... So, so, as a creative, you're designing a dance. You want to you wanna communicate something to this audience. And then you've got someone else's body communicating that. And they're bringing, I guess, their own, you know, take on that or their own accent on your choreography.
4: It's like if your buildings were like, hey, I don't Uh, like concrete.
3: Yeah, okay. Yeah.
4: You know, I'm not good at this concrete thing. I'm more of a wood building.
3: (laughs) I get that from from (laughs) subcontractors sometimes.
4: So it's. Yeah, so, I mean, in my work, personally, I kind of circumvent that issue by making the work somehow uh, explicitly about the people in the work. So I'm not the kind of choreographer who says, learn these moves. I'll be in conversation with each person in the work about what they're interested in. How they want to move inside the frame of this question, and then I kind of my job is more like a I mean maybe more like a that when Natalie said curation is from the word care, you know that it feels much more like that to me.
3: and so somehow. can you can you tell us about hello, hello yeah. and then can you tell us like within that you know what are you trying to say? Is there anything utopian in that or is that more? Dystopian. What, what, is, what is that? <laughs>
4: no dystopia. Yeah. It's hello. It's not goodbye. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I think. I mean, the whole utopia question. I think dance is is super. You know, I think when I think about utopia, I think about what can I do now to make later better. Yeah. What what behaviors, what acts, what what kind of relationship to this person I'm with right now? What? How can I Manifest now in time, something that will contribute to making the world maybe not better but certainly not worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's something in the practice and the process based kind of uh, gener- uh, kind of generation of dance that kind of keeps that that very present. I think people really look after one another because it's super um, it's in the Even though often it doesn't use words, it's in the oral tradition. The way it's passed, the way it's communicated, the way it's built is very much about communication. So that, in relationship to hello, I was thinking, how do I, from Australia, make a dance in Mexico with a bunch of four people I've never met? And it was one of those crazy things where you get a phone call, I'll do the mime, ring, ring, hello. or did you want me to someone say hello? said, No, 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 you're good. Someone said... Uh, Buenos dias. Someone said, do you want to make a... Would you like to go to Mexico and choreograph a work on a company? I was like, OK. Like, it was really like that out of the blue. And it was this... Uh, I think it was a defat fat thing. I'm not calling you fat. <laughs> um, it was... It was... I think there was some kind of trade agreement going on and often those in the arts will know that often that... Un- Ooh unleash the proprioception, because I'm a dancer, unleashes the um, cash sometimes in weird ways, like it just kind of appears. So this was one of those things. And I said, well, I don't know if I want to go to Mexico and make a peace with people I've never met, which the person on the other end of the phone are like, was like, are you kidding? Like, you're saying No. Like, why would you... Like, did not get it. I was like, well, you know, making a dance is a very serious business and I don't know if I like them or if we share anything or if we... So we set up a Skype kind of date with the company and they were great. I really liked them, so I got on the plane and went over there. And then I couldn't move. It takes a long time to make a dance. It's a very... uh, um, it's a very expensive form, as those in the visual arts are finding out, as dance is increasingly something that's. Um are we done?
1: I'm sorry to say yes. I don't get ring, out! I don't ring the bell, but I'm <laughs> waiting here with the microphone. Uh, that's, that's a microphone. That's your 15 minutes.
4: Okay,
1: that's it. was magic. Ladies and gentlemen, Becky magic. Hill. <laughs> and if you could uh, bid farewell to Jeremy McLeod Bye, as well. Jeremy.
4: Oh, Jeremy, Jeremy. I live in Footscray and there's so many horrible things going on there, architecturally speaking. Can we talk later? Yes. Okay.
1: Jeremy's going to set up an architectural agony art uh, <laughs> company after this. Uh, please welcome to the stage Rufus Black. It's quite
4: full on up here. <laughs> hi, Rufus. Becky, hi. I was stalking you on the internet today to learn about you and I saw you do this great thing about encouraging people to come to Ormond College, I love that.
6: I do do that.
4: It's <laughs> this one, it's on YouTube, it's so good.
6: Yeah, it's got so many views that somebody's put an awful advertisement in front of it. <laughs>
4: That's true. But there's also this, great, this is off topic, but there's one time you're standing there and there's a tennis game going on behind yeah. you and there's a bird going, ah, like all the way through it. It's really great. But <laughs> you said this thing that I thought was so beautiful. I was like, oh, I want to do that and I want to go to Ormond College. You said, Ormond College, you were interested in equipping people to make a disproportionate difference to the world.
6: Yeah, that's fundamentally what we see ourselves as being about, is finding a community of people who will really educate each other to have an aspiration, a set of skills and relationships and imagination. Um, That means whatever they do, they'll not just make a difference but make... The kind of difference that might endure for a little while.
4: I love that word, uh, dispro- disproportionate. Yeah, it's I think an edgy
6: it's, kind of word.
4: Yeah, well, it's really like, because we think of disproportion as some, because of the tricky diss in the front of it. Yeah, yeah, no, As something it. kind of like, but I.
6: Change happens when there's dissonance, when things are. Put in some level of anxiety and tension, uh, and unless you invite that from the beginning, I think it becomes a kind of passive or pastiche of what change is about.
4: Yeah, I read this thing, there's only, I hadn't really thought about it before, and I'm very bad with reading things and not remembering where I read it. But um, that there's only two kinds of change incremental and sudden. Like I hadn't really. I thought there were many, many more kinds of change than that. But... Well, I
6: suspect it probably simplifies it a bit, though. I think there are lots of forms
4: of change. Do you change. think? Yeah.
6: I think I think the world does change in kind of sudden interruptions and subtle ways, but changes, change moves at all sorts of different speeds. It's what makes our dynamic kind of world.
4: Um, so can you tell me about education and utopia?
6: Yeah, well, I... I, I I guess it starts with an observation that I think utopias are dangerous. So, I like to keep utopias out of education. I think utopias are totalitarianizing ideas that kind of start to accrete people who want to use them to enforce a vision on, on the world. I don't think they've got a good history. So, I'm deeply suspicious of utopias. Um, I think they also project a sense that um, there is an ideal. And I don't think there is an ideal. I think there's a real, and I think we can make the real better. Um, But I think it's a kind of false conception of life to think there is some ideal out there that we've always been striving for. I think Plato took an appallingly wrong turn early in Western history and set us off on a bad track. Fortunately, Aristotle followed him, and we got back on a little better track. But that Platonic idea, I think, has been causing a lot of harm for a very long time. And the other thing is, uh, I'm, you know, a great believer that we can make the world better. Um, But it requires a measure of kind of realism. And I think when we get stuck in utopias, we lose sight of the kind of hard graft that making the world better is really all about.
4: A bit of a presentist? No, not I
6: I, I think we always live on the cusp of, I, I mean, ultimately there is only the present. Um, we live intensely and fully in it, hopefully um, but the future is always becoming uh, and we just we have a task to make that becoming uh, better than it would otherwise uh, would otherwise be but i 'm ultimately somebody who thinks the world is and the kind of reality is ordered for that possibility for the possibility that it can be better, and that we don 't fight the world when we try to make it better um, that and often we know when things are we're getting there because it starts to come together, starts to be a kind of harmony. Because ultimately, I think people and reality itself are disposed that way. Okay, can I just interrupt very
1: briefly to ask Rufus whether there's a relationship between your distrust of utopias and your life as a theologian? Like I'm thinking, Robert Browning, you know, and, I, Reach and I,
6: Grasp. Uh, well, I, I indeed, because. the history of theology is littered really ever since uh, the book of Revelation with this kind of apocalypse vision. Um, You know, it's made a very unhealthy contribution, uh, Augustine's City of God. Um, It's made a series of very unhealthy contributions to this kind of notion of uh, perfect other world, Um, you know, Western... Western theology took a, you know, Augustine was another sad Platonist who, um, again, took us off in a dangerous direction. And, you know, too much of history has been marked by life-oriented beyond this life. Um, And so I worry about any of those kind of constructs that take us away from the fundamental task of being human better.
4: Um, Do you... So basically talking about kind of concepts of pluralism being,
6: yes. you
4: know, kind of the... You know, I would consider that a utopian vision, but not necessarily one that has any particular idea. I mean, I think utopia is an ideal, but I think it's much more about how we, how we treat now.
6: You yeah, know? I, I just don't... In terms of what idea animates the sense that the world can be better... I don't like it as a starting point. You don't like that uh, word. No, I think it it keeps importing into the conversation things that um, ultimately run against it, a real sense of pluralism. Run against a real sense that the ta- is against those kind of observations i was making earlier that the project is the grasping and pursuit of an ideal rather than the recognition and you know I, you think of kind of wonderful projects like jeremy's there is something we can do tomorrow that will make the world better um, and we need that needs to galvanize our energies not um, the sense that there is a perfect kabuzier like or any of these other ghastly visions of what a city, uh, city could be. Because in a great city, it's not just Jeremy's vision, it's countless other architects' visions informed by countless citizens' views of what a good life is about. And that's a great city. A great city is messy and a little bit disordered and constantly evolving and changing uh, and always committed to creating space for that to keep happening.
4: Yeah. Do you, um, do you think these concerns... Uh, are things you, you work with, uh, and ever I, I teach also in the at the Victorian College of the Arts, Melbourne University. Uh, that younger young people are, are concerned with these questions.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I think you know. I mean, I think every generation of young people is an in, is an inspiring generation. Um, this no less than any. Uh, and we have to liberate them from the sense there is any one package that they have to buy. You know, If there's something that's really important, it is to make them as suspicious of ideological packaging um, as it is of utopian visions. Um, they have to make it up for themselves and figure out how they build it. The only thing we can do, I think, is demand that it's done well. Um, that there really is a sense that excellence is possible um, and that anything less than continuing to think how do i do these things well how do i find the internal excellence to what i do and i might be inventing that excellence the if i'm excellence really doing is a new thing
4: utopia, you know as much a prison as utopia
6: no i think well it is if you think it's out there rather than it's something you create i mean i think when when new crafts emerge people find in them what is it to do that new craft really well, and the danger is that we don't recognise that, you know, we've sometimes not recognised in the world of the electronic arts, where, you know, people with a classical art education might be very kind of down on um, various forms of the digital media. Right um, now,
4: over the, the My, Sydney Maya Music Bowl, there's the two famous uh, DJs with the MSO, right? Yeah. yeah,
6: well, I think you've just got to make sure that you're finding what's that internal critique that you're engaging in that helps you get better.
4: Better. Better at the thing that you Better at the thing that you do. Mm. Right.
6: Because we all know there's a sense, and this is because ultimately I, I think we can sustain a sense that you can do things better, that progress is possible.
4: And how much, I think uh, we were talking a little bit about this, but... I know certainly in my own work that this idea of friendship networks, like that the group of people you have around you to stimulate you, to challenge you, to love you, you know, these things are uh, super important. How does that, I I imagine as a master of a college, that's something that you can help to uh, bring into It it may be the most important
6: thing we do. Um, is to help people create that it's kind of like the group of people Jeremy just talked about you don't need to do this in a college you can do this in any place which brings people together in ways that build those kind of relationships and I think if you send out into the world um, clusters of those kind of relationships that might be the most important thing as an educator that you ever do
4: yeah As universities lean more towards kind of career-based mm. learning rather than knowledge for knowledge's yeah. sake, or uh, you know, how, how do you see that?
6: Well, I'm not, I'm not sure all universities are leaning towards the career-based piece. Um, uh, and I think those that aren't, and I, I actually take at least sizable parts of the University of Melbourne and move to a Melbourne curricula as one of them, Um it 's a sense is that i i don 't I mean, I think those careers have uh, there are a small number which will continue to have the kind of train tracks like road into the rest of people 's lives, but for most people going through universities now and it has been true for a while, um, they will create an awful lot of what their life is about, and it won 't be the kind of lives other people have lived and we have to make people skillful at that and I think that's a happy circumstance. I think this is the kind of the best of, in a sense, the postmodern education, which is we're no longer preparing people to serve the machine. Yeah. Um, we're actually preparing people to create the rainforest. Um, and that's the, pro- that's the real project.
4: I was reading recently that there hasn't been such a shift between uh, generations in terms of how we receive and perceive the world between our generation and the kind of generation I, yeah, uh, since the advent of electricity, <laughs> that 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 was the that was a similarly huge shift in in the way we kind of understand and navigate our world. Do you? Um,
6: yeah, I think that's I think that's prob- probably true. Um, uh, you know, there is, uh, but uh, on the other hand, I. I kind of sometimes think these things get overclaimed. Um, so
4: there's uh, not that much difference. No, I
6: think there's, there are differences, but are they differences that really matter? Um, are they differences that fundamentally change what it is to have a good idea or a good relationship or to imagine a beautiful picture or is it, does it change those things fundamentally? I'm not so sure. It enables relationships to happen in different ways and in different modes, but you know, then the mode, if you could visit some other part of the world, if you, you know, go to the remote regions of Papua New Guinea, is a very different mode of relationship, but it's still rich relationships. So uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm a bit more sceptical about that.
4: <laughs> uh, that. That we're not, where our change is incremental, you think?
6: Uh, well, I think the change is more superficial than real. Um, I think the change is in modality rather than in mm. the reality of what it is to be human. Um,
4: Except that there, are, like, to, I mean, I agree with you on one hand, but then just the rapidity of, of how information can travel with such incredible speed, and space has also changed. Like time and space, which are basic, uh, basic constructs. Basic constructs of human, certainly in dance, they're big ones. Yeah, mm-hmm.
6: I, I think that it creates, no doubt, it creates an additional sense of in, of intensity and movement. But does that a lot of what lives in that kind of great flow um, is kind of light and noisy and fluffy. Um, you know, The big idea that flows down this massive kind of pipe that's actually significant, that might change my life, or redirect it, or make me think differently about the world, I don't think they're coming along any more or less frequently. We're swimming in different kind of river of information, and it's a bigger, faster river. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that changing us more than the last great idea? I'm not sure.
4: I don't. I'm not sure either.
6: Becky and Rufus, what about it? Is a bigger river?
1: It. The you talked about the importance of friendship groups and community and everything else. Surely the uh, increasing kind of global nature of things is having a, a kind of quantum shift on how we build those communities and how we build that sense of self and the society to which we belong.
6: You're... Yeah, I think it is in good and bad ways. So, And that may be one of the, at a societal level, there's something real going on there. Um, when I, uh, when I was finishing university, the thing that I worried about most was that the world was going to become all the same, um, and I made it a kind of project to go to places which I thought the modern world might not yet have reached. Um, And I do think there is a danger that this kind of marvellous plurality of what it is to be human is being eroded by our connectivity at a communal level um, and that the diversity of cultures that we find are are thinning and with the loss of languages, which is perhaps the most obvious way in which we know that is accelerating dramatically. Um, That's a danger. The flip side of that is we have a sense, as yet I think not fully realised, that... We belong to one planet, that we are ultimately one people um, in this one tiny place. Uh, but we're yet to really liberate that um, for good, uh, and that's the possibility.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Becky Hilton as she leaves the stage. <laughs> Rufus Black as he swaps chairs theatrically to become interviewer rather than interviewee, and welcome Aurelia Guo.
6: Aurelia, I had the uh, pleasure and privilege of reading some of your poetry and uh, listening to a podcast of you on uh, uh, 3CR. And I was struck by the kind of power of your feminist critique um, uh, in in all of its forms. And I was wondering what place a reformed understanding of gender might have in any utopia you had.
5: That's a big question. (laughs) So maybe I'll just recap some of the things that have been mentioned. I gave a talk about two months ago at Westface, which was about the hashtag Give Your Money to Women, which was a campaign that was started on Twitter by two sex workers and um, a prison abolitionist, quite radical feminists, that believed that the remedy to gender equality needed to take the form of direct monetary compensation from men to women for the emotional labor that women do and also for the sheer physical presence and availability of women, which as it is generates enormous value for the human race and survival of the species and also for capitalism in the form of capital, in the form of dollars. in contrast to the impoverishment of women sort of globally, which is where the real impoverishment of women is, and also in such, you know, like white collar, first world sort of situations as unequal pay for equal work. Um, that's something that I spoke about at West Face and something that I spoke about on the radio. I think that uh, even to bring this up, probably, gives you an idea that I think that the world as it is would need to be very radically (laughs) reformulated to, I don't know, to sort of... um,
6: Can you give us an idea of what some of that reformulation would look like? What What would be your top two or three reformulations?
5: To be honest, I've become very interested recently in... Afro-pessimism it's a term that's been quite recently coined and some of the thinkers are not academics per se someone I'm very interested in is a playwright and his conception of sort of maybe humanity and civilization is that the Western construct of humanity and civilization is at its core anti-slave and in a way anti-black because anti because um i mean like as it is as history has played out blackness and africanism is not separable from slavery and the concept of what it means to be a human to be a citizen to exist in a state of integration and recognition is something that has been formulated to include some but not all humans. And in fact, it's been constituted by the exclusion of certain forms of humanity. And so, I mean, his line is that the world is anti-black and... We would need to end the world.
6: So given that probably (laughs) truly belongs to no place, um, uh, is there a step along the way to that, perhaps a touch less radical, that gets us to address that a little more?
5: I think what I find so joyful and inspiring about his writing is that he is an activist as well as a playwright and a writer, and he sees his artistic work, his writing as a free space where he can call for the end of the world when that isn't a responsible thing or a productive thing to do as an activist, but in writing and in art, he has somewhere to express this sort of despair or this way to express some realm of his experience which cannot be translated into activism, which cannot be translated into uh, something that can be socially recognised other than as art, as philosophy, or as something yeah. abstract like that.
6: So I'm wondering, and I certainly belong to a tradition that sees the end of the world as a kind of ultimate act of reformation, But so I'm, not a, I'm quite sympathetic to this idea at some level, uh, but... It, if we move on to other aspects of your of the kind of critique that you'd have, perhaps return to your sense that there's a lot in the world of gender that we need to kind of fundamentally change, um, where else should we be headed? What, what, what's the set of changes that you would see that might improve the relationship between men and women?
5: Um, I'm very inspired by something that Ursula Le Guin wrote, which was that if aliens came to her and asked her to choose a representative of the human race that could tell these aliens what it meant to be human and to live and be on Earth. She would choose an old woman. She would choose an old, undistinguished woman who had spent her life in the home and with the family and who had seen birth and death and age and who, I don't know, had not, partaken of the world at some level of um, representation or governance or industry, but had done something. I mean, she suggested something like selling trinkets at a mall was something that she imagined this old woman um, could do. I was very struck by that. I think I found it very challenging because probably like many of the people here, I went through a tertiary education, I'm a law school dropout and I believed very much in a completely different set of values for knowledge and human improvement, um, for human fulfilment.
6: And if you are as a poet and you're playing with the idea of utopia, if we were to invite you to write a poem about utopia, what kind of words and images would you be wanting to use?
5: I mean, um, if you can't tell already, I think I feel a lot of despair at the world, <laughs> and I don't think that we live in a utopia, and when I think about myself as a student of history, particularly modern history, I see the twentieth century as the century in which utopias failed, in which socialism failed, in which fascism failed and maybe it's the century from which we can learn that experts and bureaucrats and, I mean, uh, visionaries are maybe not to be trusted.
6: (laughs) So who should we trust?
5: Trust women. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm very struck by... um, This hashtag, and I'm very struck that it was started by sex workers, that it was started by prison abolitionists, people that are outside even the legal realm of what's recognized as um, the state or the community. And maybe it's the most marginal figures that are able to see certain aspects of society most clearly, not to say that they can see it all, but but especially to emphasise that no-one can see it all or know it all and it's this partial knowledge which shouldn't be overlooked. Like, it's the specificity and contradiction that is overlooked by these total systems for understanding human behaviour or human need.
6: So in a world which has the kind of troubling, challenging, disturbing features that kind of uh, so affect you, what role does your poetry play in that world?
5: My poems won't change the world. (laughs) Um, That's the title of a book which I really admire. I mean, I think it's poetry... I think poetry... Um, in its powerlessness and futility has certain desirable qualities of um, ineffective and ineffectualness.
6: (laughs) I'm struck by a poet that celebrates the ineffectiveness of poetry. But um, uh, I wonder, though... People engage with your poems. They engage with you. They engage with the kind of all that you kind of explore and express, and it resonates with them. Does it trouble you that they find hope and possibility in the poems that you create?
5: <laughs> I mean, um, I can't be responsible for that. <laughs>
6: <laughs> so, in your in your agenda, what comes next?
5: I'm not sure. I mean. Um, all I can kind of hope for is... Um, I'm not sure. I mean...
6: So where, where do you see your own creative work heading now?
5: I mean, I think I was very struck by something else that Frank B. Wilderson, the Afro-pessimist that I was quoting earlier, said, and he said that... Um, even when people live in these impossible conditions, most people are not radical. Most people just want to feed their family and to um, feel a little love and to, just to go through their lives and to look for integration and recognition where this is possible. And even when it is impossible, most people just strive to live their lives and um, make the best of them. And... I think that, I don't, I mean, I don't think that I have a plan, especially not a utopian plan for my poetry or even uh, myself. I kind of <laughs> do it one day at a time.
6: <laughs> so in the, in, uh, in the kind of world that we've, we've got, which give us countless forms of expression, I know you have a social media, social media presence. Um, what role do you think that plays in engaging with a wider world around your ideas? What, what's the good or bad of social media for you?
5: I mean, um, as a poet, I'm very excited by the Internet. I see it as a place where language is oral and has certain or many desirable oral qualities of um, immediacy, intimacy, um, accessibility that I found quite lacking in the written well, the written word. And for me, social media is a desirable place because the barriers to entry of social media are much lower than the barriers of entry to a university, to a literature degree, to a fine art degree. Um, To me, the internet and the user generated internet, which is maybe, I mean, Web 2.0, the internet that we've had in the last maybe five, maybe 10 years is it's a community that I want to be part of. I see it as very cosmopolitan, as very plural, and I see it as less restricted and restrictive than the art world, the literary world, or other places that um, I go, but I don't want to be confined to. Uh,
6: does it oh, wow.
1: <laughs> On that note, I'd ask you to join me in thanking Rufus Black. <laughs> Thank you. Thank
4: you.
1: There are some interesting uh, threads coming along here. While Aurelia makes her way to the other chair for, the, again, the theatre of it, um, uh, the, uh, Becky uh, pointed out the almond the desire to see its students make disproportionate change. And Aurelia talked about being inspired and, and finding joyous the activism of others. So some of those questions about how we make change uh, meaningfully may continue to thread through the evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Stoller.
5: Apologise for not being more prepared.
7: <laughs> and I have to apologise. I've never watched The Wire, so we can't even talk about that.
5: <laughs> um, so I was reflecting on your field, architecture, and I was reflecting on utopia, and particularly how architecture has been um, a real area of interest for a lot of the utopians of the 20th century that I just uh, talked about in brief. Do you have any thoughts on the history of architecture and utopia?
7: There was a terrific point made earlier that um, there tends to be a correlation between utopian visions and totalitarian beliefs, and what greater way to totalize the world than to put people in a space that you design to a very particular constraint. (laughs) So I think architects who like to control things, uh, and I count myself among them, um, are drawn to utopian visions of a sort. Uh, But again, the point was made, uh, we have to be very careful as architects uh, and I should say I was trained as an architect, but I don't practice as an architect, I practice as an environmental designer, someone that helps architects and engineers and all of the other collaborators in making the built environment, uh, help them make the buildings more environmentally responsible, more socially responsible. Um, We have to be careful not to let our desires for dictating life or to make a better life dictate what people do in their spaces.
5: I've been I've been very interested in something else which is uh, a book actually by a literary critic who engages very much with the environment his name is Timothy Morton and he's written a book called Ecology Without Nature and makes state- statements like uh I mean this is a quotation but that nature is not natural and cannot be naturalized how would you conceptualize the difference if there is one between humans and the built environment and uh, the environment or nature?
7: <laughs> Great question because nature is a very tricky notion. Uh, nature is essentially that which I would say one way of viewing nature is it's everything that's um, not a human construct and in some ways is too scary for us to deal with in everyday life. So we've constructed the idea of nature as the other space. Now there's also you know, ideas of nature as wilderness, of places of sort of sacred spirituality, of, of all sorts of things. But um, we define culture in some ways as that which is not nature, and nature which is that which is not culture. So I guess if I were to have a utopian vision, it might be that as humanity, we redefine culture as being part of nature rather than in opposition to nature. Because our opposition to nature is what I think helps us treat nature as a commodity, which has led to all sorts of environmental problems in the world.
5: Do you think there's any way back from that, or do you think we kind of... <laughs> uh,
7: as an optimist in the crowd here, yes. That um, there's many pessimistic days in the office. Uh, yes, there's ways back from it. And I, I think we have come a long way in as a human culture over the last you know, century at least and re- re-understanding the importance of nature and the quality of our lives, starting to understand the economic utility, the ecological utility of nature. We're recognizing the many ways that, that we are, our fate as humanity is tied up in nature and the environment. So we're getting there, but we could be getting there a little bit faster.
5: I may be, I may be a pessimist about this again, but um, something <laughs> that Someone has to be. <laughs> Something that Timothy Morton says is that um, it's already too late and that what we have now is going to be utter catastrophe or it's going to be geoengineering, which is just kind of shooting gases into the atmosphere or more sort of um, techno-scientific intervention with nature. Do you... you, But you don't believe that it's too late?
7: Uh, It's certainly too late for some things. It's too late to stop... You know, our climate from changing and average global temperatures from going up a few degrees. That's not necessarily, it's not great, but it's not necessarily the end of the world. It's just the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine for all of you <laughs> old folks who used to listen to that. Um, so, you know, it's not too late. Um, I get very nervous around global geoengineering because uh, I think as designers of the built environment, we should heed the, the doctor's creed or Hippocratic Oath of first do no harm, and my god, there's an awful lot of harm that could come out of tinkering with global systems and the possibilities that things will go sideways. Um, there's plenty of examples of biological engineering and not understanding the consequences and of us causing more harm through a natural solution than uh, the original problem. Think cane toad frogs in Queensland, for example.
5: I think that architecture has a very interesting and complicated history with um social control. and when
7: <laughs> yes,
5: when you mentioned um biology, I thought about uh, I mean, we were talking earlier about public health, and um we were talking about agriculture. And when I think about uh, the way that the way that these systems have been designed for the built environment and for uh, the food that we eat and the air that we breathe, and um, the water supply that runs through our cities. I mean, I was reading today about Flint, Michigan.
7: Ah, yes, Flint. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I should say the background of this is, before this started, Aurelia showed me a diagram, very complicated, that started with agriculture and all paths out of agriculture led back to war. Um, But I would also say human systems like agriculture also bring about good things. Um, You know, agriculture not only leads to war, but it leads to the ability of people to live closely together and share ideas and bring about all sorts of great things in culture and civilization that if we were out chasing birds and bugs and bunnies and roots and berries to keep ourselves alive, we wouldn't be able to enjoy. So um, there are many big global systems that, that certainly shape our lives and that could be more equitable could be more environmentally friendly could be all sorts of things um, I don 't mean to say that the world is is as uh, particularly great shape, but there are also lots of other good things that come from these and is that answering your question i'm not sure it is
5: i think I think that um I think that it does in in, in a roundabout way I mean um, we talked a little bit about some cities that we've lived in or that we're going to live in um are you more of a city person or more of a country person?
7: Oh, I'm a city person. I, I have a front yard and a backyard, and frankly, that's one more than I want. Um, arguably two, because there's a park down the street, and why would I want to play selfishly with my kids in the front yard where we could go play in the park and see our neighbours and, and be together? That's why we live in cities. I think that that's something about humanity is we, we, for most of us, want to be together, even if we don't always want to be immediately together. So I'm a city person. I believe in cities. I believe in in bringing people together and and the great example of of, um, we heard earlier from uh, Jeremy about the common, it's great success I understand, is not just its architecture and its design but its community making. I lived in New York City in a place called Sunnyside Gardens which was a sort of 1930s version of that Um, housing for the people, workers housing but was very much designed around community and common gardens and all that and the great thing about living there wasn't the, weren't the buildings, which were nice enough, but they were kind of ordinary. It was the community because of the way it was designed. We 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 came together, and it was terrific.
5: How do you feel about the suburbs?
7: Uh, the suburbs, I, I feel suburbs are tricky because suburbs mean lots of th- different things to different people. Suburbs stereotypically mean big like mansions with you know Kmart baroque windows and you know faux Palladian bathrooms and all sorts of bullshit sprawling and soaking up resources that shouldn't have. But actually, suburbs traditionally are are quite urban. They were developed around train stops, they were tight houses closely together, Um, they were good places to live, and they were reasonably resource efficient, which is kind of what I deal with every day. So, suburb isn't necessarily bad. It's all about how you develop the suburb. If it's urban, responsible, socially focused, fantastic. It's a it's a it's a unit of the metropolis or of the big city. Suburbs as places to sprawl and be selfish and put yourself in a gated community and wall out your neighbors and hide behind your four-car garage. I don't like them at all.
5: I think it's very interesting because um suddenly like one of the things in that chart um whereby architecture uh, architecture, sorry, agriculture led to war was <laughs> uh, population density which is something that humans um, just seem to desire, humans seem to want to be together. And I was very struck by, uh, I mean, the social network, the movie about Facebook, and <laughs> I mean, simply the existence of Facebook and the enormous success and the capital like valuation of Facebook, which was just humans' sheer insatiable desire to be together, to know about each other, to be together all the time, to know all that there is about each other. Um, do you find? Do you find this utopian or?
7: I find being together a terrific thing. I find Facebook and virtual media useful and interesting and. An important way to stay connected to people who are physically distant, but I also do find it distancing when we are together but all alone looking at our phones. So, you know, the technology giveth, the technology taketh away. I don't think we, as, as contemporary society, have come to grips with connectivity, and of information about everyone available all the time. It's we're hardwired to know what's going on, and we haven't quite figured out how to put that in, how to swim through the river of information we've talked about earlier
1: I'm sorry to interrupt but I'm interested Paul because that's several times you've circled back around the idea of the contrast between the communal and the selfish surely in your work particularly the benchmarking part of it you <laughs> see that uh, selfishness might be the great triumph of the 20th early 21st century how do, we, how do we kick that how do we turn it around is selfishness innate or is it just something we're being conditioned to revert to
7: I'm not sure Uh, I hadn't thought about that before it's a tricky one because we're all taught to solve the problem ourselves you know in school you're given your own test you you're you're taught to do things yourself. architecture school the quintessential breeding ground for kind of solve it yourself go it alone the image of the heroic architect do it yourself leads us to isolated approaches and isolated solutions um, which they have their moments but it uh, I think ultimately I'm more satisfied doing things with other people than being with other people. That's why I like cities. We do things together. We live together in cities. We share experiences together in cities. So I'm, I'm leery of systems that that push us out to be on our own. It is important to have moments on our own and to have moments that we can reflect. But the, you know, the, <laughs> the image of the Thoreau kind of retreat into the wilderness to know yourself um, Which is a total sham because of course he lived you know 10 minutes from mom's house she could do the laundry he could go have lunch with mr emerson is it's a sham we we need to be with people and i think we are happiest as humanity when we thrive and do things together i'm not sure again that answered your question oh it started to (laughs) i will say regarding benchmarking there are lots of and regulation there's lots of things in the built environment and how we regulate society that encourages us to do things on our own as an environmental designer that drives me crazy because there's many things we can do together more efficiently more economically when we do them together you know providing power to cities traditionally done by power plants for lots of us all at once makes a lot of sense for all sorts of reasons Uh, trying to solve the world's problems by burying your house in solar panels there's upsides but there's a lot of downsides to that I will do it all myself approach
5: that's very interesting that's very interesting to me what about growing your own food uh,
7: I love to have a garden. I'm all for growing my own food, but I don't want to grow, it's impossible for me to grow all my own food. As a person in the city, I can't reasonably have cows and pigs and sheep and things in the yard because they're going to drive my neighbors crazy. And also the, the carrying capacity of my yard doesn't work. So uh, it's selfish to try and, it's selfish for my neighbors, it's selfish for the animals to raise them in that condition. So, you know, it, it works out best for everyone. I think if the animals live in a place where they've got some room to grow, to live, It and trying to do everything yourself, um, again, is utopian and leads as a, a utopian like ideal in the sense that it leads to all sorts of problems, I think, that we don't want to have. It can become dystopian quite quickly, especially if you live near somebody who has roosters.
1: I guess I'm curious about how hard a sell it is. Can you just give us an idea of in your practice when you're consulting and you're trying to advise people on, on how to kind of proceed in their own planning? Uh, practices, uh, is it hard to convince people to think of the greater good?
7: Depends on the person. There are some who genuinely want to do the right thing. They operate within all sorts of worldly constraints, but they go as far as they can. There are some who don't care altruistically. They care pragmatically. Does it sell me more stuff? Does it get my name out there? Does it you know, improve my brand? Um, and as a consultant, part of my job is to take people f- as far as they can go, or a little bit further, to be responsible. And I use whatever I can to get them to do that. Uh, so it's it's selling good ideas and selling being better is a part of what I think all consultants do, especially environmental design consultants.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Aurelia Guo. Thank and welcoming to the stage Gregory Phillips. Paul's left the stage entirely because he wants to make an entrance again. And and here he is, Paul Stoller and Gregory Phillips.
7: Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm really intrigued. Uh, You are a a
8: medical anthropologist. Mm -hmm. What is a medical anthropologist? So human beings, um, different groups in society have different values. It's all about... um, what people believe and why they believe it and what they pursue in life. Um, So, for example, older people and younger people think about their values and their lives very differently Um, and they have different beliefs about what works or what doesn't and so you can target uh, health programs and medical programs based on people's values and beliefs which are gonna be very different according to different groups in society. So our job is kinda like to um, understand the human side of health statistics. So rather than planning public health systems based only on money and statistics, it's to understand, it's no use designing, for example, a health system um, based on the values that men would have and hope that women will turn up, or vice versa.
7: I can't imagine that's ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) So. So you're designing systems, and utopian, utopia is, a system of things that are perfect. So, are there utopian like elements of what you do, trying to design ideal systems, or are you engaged in the, are your systems dealing with messy reality?
8: Um, both. Um, it's all about perception, obviously. Um, so, the job of the anthropologist, I mean, old school anthropology is very much about the other and the exotic and, um, using one's own value system to, to judge or to try and describe another. Um, modern anthropology, if you will, or um, anthropology at home, as it's sometimes called, is about, um, you, it's not up to me to, to understand or judge the other, it's just up to me to be able to describe and to work with a given group to help them to find solutions to whatever it is that they're dealing with or to describe their own world or whatever. So Utopia for us is not about imposing values or beliefs, um, but about allowing or um, organically empowering or allowing that to come through from the particular group that you might be working with.
7: In your work, do you focus on how medicine as we understand it today, or healthcare being positive, do you focus on how to deliver that better or are you trying to conceive of a better way to be healthy?
8: Um, well, obviously both. I mean, for let me talk about um, one of our, our big contemporary challenge, obesity. Whereas in the past, of course, um, most of the diseases that humans uh, suffered from were infectious diseases. So, you know, um, uh, leprosy or whatever it might have been. Um, nowadays, diseases are so-called lifestyle diseases. So it's mental health, um, obesity, um, cardiovascular disease, and these things are complex. It's not just as easy. I mean, if you, if you take nutrition and, and exercise, it's not simple. It's not simply about saying eat three, you know, groups of fruit and vegetables and exercise <laughs> half an hour a day. I mean, we say that ad, ad nauseum. The information is not necessarily what's going to make the difference. It's what people value and believe about themselves and their community that will make the difference. And interestingly, um, one of the problems that we have is that our yardstick for measuring health or well-being is very much from um, the infectious diseases time. So we're still measuring based on statistics and we're still measuring based on dollars. We're not measuring based on And we're measuring on the individual, whether the individual will change or whether they will turn up and eat their fruit and vegetables or whether they'll turn up to their next doctor's appointment. Whereas what we ought to be concerned about is who is that person connected to? Um, And how do they operate within a family and community system? And how can we intervene in a family and community way so that it makes it trendy and happy and everyone wants to do the same action rather than trying to blame an individual for poor health choices?
7: Interesting, so it, it comes back to the point we were just discussing earlier, success is a community issue, it's not necessarily or probably uh, an individual issue.
8: Yes, um, one of the points earlier was that people um, have this hunger for connection. Um, hum- humans now, and you know, Facebook is kind of lonely book, really, um, because <laughs> we, what we're doing is we're providing the technological way For people to connect but not necessarily the contextual or the feeling and the emotional that goes with it and so yeah sure technology is very useful in in certain contexts but if if that's all we do if we only do a technical solution as opposed to a also a contextual and a communal solution or um, basically what we need to do is view our values and beliefs into whatever technology we're using as well it's got to be for the right reasons it's not just the technology itself.
7: Oh, so we can't just give a, an iPad to everyone, and that will make us healthier. No. Which seems to be the philosophy in education in some parts of the world.
8: Yes, <laughs> yes. It's it's a very um, and again it's it's about um, it's about society's values that we're valuing intellectualism over emotions. That emotions are somehow weak. Um, uh, and that our thoughts and rationality, in a reductionist um, way, is the thing that's going to save humanity from climate change, when the bleeding obvious right in front of us is that that's not the case.
7: Yeah. Hmm. Um, just moving slightly sideways on this, in in the built in, the world of the built environment, um, all the rage at all the conferences these days is wellness. Mm-hmm. Um, how we as as the design world can design the built environment to make us happier, healthier, to make us well. Um, do you have any advice for us?
8: Um, how
7: could we be? Uh, how can we design towards a more utopian society, genuinely toward wellness?
8: Uh, so I don't really understand anything about architecture or design in that sense. But I will point
7: out, you probably live in a house, you walk <laughs> here through a city, sure. you know a lot more about buildings than you're willing to fess up.
8: But what I would say is that I don't think we actually need to design anything. I think it's already been designed, um, and it's the trees that are right here and the fresh air. So really, it's not about us creating new knowledge. I think the West has this obsession with discovery, (laughs) that we discover new knowledge, and that's a lot of crap from an Aboriginal point of view. Um, That knowledge is um, in the land. It's just whether or not we're attuned to it or not. So the knowledge that humans need to survive on this planet is already here. Nothing new has to be created. We just need to pull our heads out of our asses and listen to it.
7: <laughs> Sage, advice. Um, Sorry.
1: Can I just clarify, for those in the audience who thought they had a stroke a few minutes ago, the lights have dimmed. <laughs> so you're okay, just breathe regularly.
8: Greg, do you find the term... While we're talking about technology, do you want a light? Oh, Seamless. Thank you. <laughs> um,
1: Greg, yes. while, um, just quickly while Paul's finding his place. Thank you. Is the notion of wellness a helpful one? That emphasis on wellness over health um, seems to be very much in vogue. Is that one from your perspective that's a useful one?
8: Yeah, I mean, look, it, de- it depends how you use it. Um, capitalism has this really great way of taking any nearly spiritual... Um, concept and just completely ripping it apart for monetary gain. So, um, cynically, that part of the wellness movement is bullshit. But um, the, the substance of it in that, um, I think, and this is part of the old yardstick of what we think health is, um, from a very Western point of view, we consider health to be the body and the mind. So we think about physical health and we think about mental health um but we spend very little time in society thinking about emotional health in fact we think emotional health is a part of a head which is why we're getting all messed up um and we think because we think matters of the heart are just for weaklings and we certainly don't spend much time in spiritual development we're kind of um recoiling from um you know matters of the church and hierarchy spirituality gone mad kind of thing and so as a society we don't want to chuck out the baby with the bathwater, but we kind of have. So we've kind of... It, it's not that, you know, everything about the churches or organised religion is bad. It's that the hierarchy in it is bad, obviously, um, and humans' fallibility. But the good stuff in it is the values and the spiritual stuff. So wellness, to me, and from an Aboriginal point of view, is all four of those things, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual.
7: Hmm. Thanks. And do you think it's possible to drag our... Western conception of wellness, which is essentially boiled down to medicine, making sick people better, to drag that into a more holistic and uh, uh, sense of wellness and and making people completely well.
8: Yeah, I, I have a. Good joke about this. People always ask me, what do, you, what do medical anthropologists do? And I say, well, if you're having a heart attack, I can't help you, but I can help you with your values and beliefs about it. So we do, <laughs> we do need medical doctors, right? Yes. Um, sure. Um, but, again, it's about why, uh, why society values them. See, in the West, medicine is a very um, prestigious um, intellectual A-type personality pursuit, right, um, and we pay in the West our doctors exorbitant amounts of money. Now they do; they work very hard, no doubt about it. Um, do they work any harder than you know um, workers in a South African gold mine You get paid not much? Um, I don't know. Do they? Um, that's very bright. Excuse me. Um, I think that. Turn that off. So. We, we do need doctors, but Cuba, for example, and Sri Lanka and some other countries have a much more, what I would say, balanced view of well, health and wellness in the, the system. Um, so that doctors in Cuba are not recruited based on their scores out of high school. They're based on whether or not they're willing to serve under, underserved populations. That's the mm. primary criteria. Of course, they still have to make standards about getting in and passing basic science and biology and maths, etc. but that's not the primary criteria. The primary criteria is what are they going to give back to society? So it's not that medicine itself is the problem, it's the values and beliefs we place on medicine and why we value medicine in the way we do. Vis-a-vis, it's becoming more and more capitalist, and the health industry now is an industry as opposed to a service.
7: My aunt was a hospital administrator and she often bemoaned the fact that um, the world she operated in was full of technicians not caregivers not healers essentially
8: yeah um, and and you know medicine was an extremely came from an extremely male you know gendered um, patriarchal power base in the west at least um, whereas um, and so this whole thing about nurses came along and it, Florence Nightingale was, Nightingale was mentioned earlier and the nursing profession very much tried to do the caring bit and the human bit right and still does um, but the power imbalance you know, remains the health system is still extremely gendered in terms of power um, and it doesn't just mean that we need more women doctors <laughs> it means that we redefine what we mean by well-being
7: how did you come to be to be a medical anthropologist
8: I'm not sure I'm still trying to figure it out <laughs> no I um, I started working in education programs for young Aboriginal people and youth programs and I worked in a land council and I did different bits and pieces um, ended up realizing that alcohol and drugs was one of the main issues that our young people were dealing with and that that was a proxy for a whole lot of identity and yep. um, you know, dealing with racism on a daily basis, etc. A whole lot of um, social dislocation issues, um, and so through working in alcohol and drugs, then I ended up working in the health sector per se, moving from education to health, um, and through a series of, some might say, coincidences, ended up um, doing a research master's, trying to figure out from a cultural perspective um, what is. What does the problem of alcohol and drugs in Aboriginal communities represent? So the Western narrative about that is it's that the naughty Aborigines drink too much, or that um, they're genetically predisposed against dealing with being able to handle alcohol. Um, the, if, see, this is the problem with epidemiology. If all you read is epidemiolo- the, the health statistics, the problem is um, Aboriginal people will say things like, uh, we have disproportionate Um, representation in the youth justice system, criminal justice system. And what we mean by that is that the system's being racist and not taking care of our needs or taking into account the full story. What people hear when they hear that, the non-educated, is naughty Aborigines are just criminal, right? So it's about values and beliefs and how you interpret. Um, And there was a train of thought to link that back to your original question, which I'm not sure. Uh, Perhaps we'll get to it. uh,
7: you have helped rewrite the curriculum for medical schools in australia um tell us a bit about what were the, the the most important aspects of that curricular change that are changing the way our doctors and nurses and our healthcare givers engage with the world yeah
8: it's twofold um so medicine wanted to do aboriginal health as the other as the exotic so there was a belief that if we just taught all medical students about Aborigines and our culture and values, that they would somehow magically like us more and be better doctors. Um, The problem with that is that that doesn't deal with systemic racism that people might have without knowing they've got it, and it also doesn't deal with um, that own person's values and beliefs. There are 230 different language groups in Australia, Aboriginal groups, so... I'm going to spend my lifetime learning my own cultural values, let alone the other 230. So, I don't expect non Aboriginal people to know that. So, the first skill that we wrote into the curriculum framework was not to learn about the other, but to learn about self. That, unless doctors of whichever culture, male or female, understood their own values and what made them tick and why they were doing medicine, then they're not going to understand somebody who's different to them. Yeah? So that's the first skill. Um, and secondly, somehow, through then teaching about our culture, we're trying to teach um, medicine that, and doctors, bless their hearts, that they're not all they're cracked up to be. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> yeah.
7: Well, words for us all to live by. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Stoller and Greg Phillips.
8: hi everyone hello it's all yours so Michael tell us how did you end up at the wheeler center
1: a series of administrative errors uh, mostly (laughs) Um, but luckily in the arts we're really slow at catching up on those so I'm still there Um, I'm I'm a bookish person I've always been a book nerd and I worked in publishing for uh, many years Um, and then. Uh, i took a side trip to publishing in new york and when i came back i was doing freelance editing and anyone who's ever done freelance work knows how deeply unsatisfying that can be when you're a freelance editor you tend to have to say yes to anything that comes your way so i edited a diet book uh not well i'm gonna i'm gonna say Uh, i edited a uh, an encyclopedia of cancer um, which had three pages on testicular cancer, and the section on cervical cancer was a single paragraph that basically said, "Take a pill and go and have a lie down." Um, so it was a book that didn't really deserve to stay in print. Um, I, I was doing all these things, and they really didn't satisfy me. And I, I was kind of floundering around trying to work out whether I wanted to go back into a big house again, or, or what I wanted to do. And a, an opportunity came up to do breakfast radio on Triple R, and I love doing radio. It's a wonderful medium. But it's... Triple R was a great place to do it because it was a community radio station. So it's uh, entirely funded by its subscribers and uh, there is a really palpable sense of giving back to the community to which you belong. And it took some of my bookishness. I I had a boss in publishing who once said, and it pains me that I can't help quoting him regularly, but he once said publishing in its purest form is about connecting an idea with its natural audience. Mm. And the thing that I loved about radio was I was doing that again and again. I was doing that every single day when I got up. and Well, not every day. Some days it was dodgier than that. But most of it was that same kind of principle. And I found that it was taking that love I had of publishing and finding a really different way to apply it. And so when the uh, state government announced it was setting up a centre for books, writing and ideas, it was this weird kind of abstract concept and it wasn't immediately clear how it would play out. But what was clear was it was going to be a place that was committed to connecting ideas with a natural audience Mm. in as kind of uh, versatile and kind of experimental a way as possible. And that sounded like something I wanted to be part of.
8: It strikes me that when people who really love books, who are are bookworms um, or who who work in in that world, that they have a real um, almost spiritual connection to the books and the stories, right? Um, To me, that's about values, partly. Um, Can you tell me what you think um, the Wheeler Centre brings to to society's discussion about who we are? I think...
1: The holding of the discussion is a pretty important starting point. Mm. Um, Part of what excited me, being involved with the Wheeler Centre since inception, part of what excited me was this idea that public conversation was something that deserved to be elevated. Even though we came from this kind of bookish base and the idea was that we were ostensibly a literary... um, You know, thinking in terms of the way government funding works, we were under the category of literature. So traditionally what that meant was our job was means to an end. At the end of the process of what we did somewhere, someone should buy a book. Hmm. Um, But actually what we discovered really quickly was that was a complete misconception of how to create a useful literary organisation in a city. That actually the literary art of conversation was what we were putting on our stage, what we were putting on a pedestal. That, you know, we're all used to the idea that Public conversation, public discourse is this massively degraded thing that because of the forces of capital yeah. and, and uh, the degradation of the various pillars of civil society in different ways, public conversation doesn't happen in the way that uh, I think in our own utopian vision it might or it should happen. And the nonsense of it is, it actually is happening. It's happening in people's communities, it's happening around their kitchen tables, it's happening in their homes, it's happening on social media. Mm. Um, But the idea that government might be able to fund a physical place in the middle of the city that says, this is important. You can gather for this and it shouldn't be about whether you can afford to pay your way to come and hear it. It shouldn't be about whether you agree with everything that happens on the stage. It should just be, there should be a space for this. And there should be people who are committed to the idea of making sure it's done well and it's done regularly. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. I got on a bit of a tear there.
8: No, no, I think, I think it does, because again, it's about, um, for me, and maybe you could respond, is it's about um, exactly what you're saying, the places where conversations ought to be had and um, public debates, because we're seeing it less and less in our public universities, actually. Um, they're becoming more corporatised. Um, we're seeing it less and less in the media in the fourth estate that's becoming more and more monopolized so um, if it's not happening in public spaces and it's only happening on social media or around people's kitchens tables then how do how does the society know what it stands for How how does it know who it is. I think
1: that's right. I think that's a really interesting tension and I think it leads to what is almost a kind of spiritual crisis yeah. uh, when it comes to kind of social identity. I, I mean, I, I I was really pleased to hear Rufus's optimism about universities and I, I think he's right. I think amazing work is still happening in our yeah. universities but there's... Uh, the philosopher Raymond Gator gave a wonderful lecture a couple of years ago that I think you can still find online called Civilising the City. That was... Basically, took as its kind of starting point the idea that once upon a time universities saw that as their job to civilize the city, to not just do what they did on campus for their students and their stakeholders and their alumni. And just as a little sidebar, if the University of Melbourne would like to stop sending me alumni material, I'd be very grateful. It comes like 10 or 11 pieces a week. Those people are amazing. Um, But, you know, once upon a time it wasn't about who are our key stakeholders, it was about how do we take this extraordinary knowledge, this research, this passion for learning and make sure it permeates everything outwards. And I think as institutions, despite the best intentions of many people who work in them, they've lost sight of that a bit. And I think that the great work that happens in universities can occasionally do it with a Kickstart to filter out into the wider community, uh, not as a branding exercise, but actually as a genuine social endeavour. Our newspapers, well, you know, that's a different, altogether sadder story. But I, I think we do need these places for these voices to be heard. And one of the real challenges for us is how you become a platform for that and you repress your own desire for a platform you know that's a convoluted way of saying it but we are you know we a bit over half our money we get each year still comes from state government the rest of it comes from philanthropy and individual giving and bits and pieces we eighty percent of what we do we do completely for free because we feel like that's a very fundamental part of what we do um, and we pay all our speakers and we pay them well because again crucial part of the mission. But that government funding is essential uh, and for that reason, not only for that reason, but we have to be very careful not to be seen as a partisan organ in any way. Um, we're a, an arts institution in inner city Melbourne that talks about human rights, the arts, Uh, social justice, Mm. we are inevitably portrayed as a lefty think tank. Mm. Jared Henderson mentioned us in his column this week, so that's nice. He must Um, be doing something right. I think he thinks we all wear sandals. He's he's wrong. I've got hideous feet. Um, But we have to be really careful about that. But that becomes a tension in and of itself, because we're not interested in this false equivalency. We're not interested in getting into that ABC trap of, okay, well, if we're going to have someone who thinks this, we have to have the equal and opposing voice no matter how incredible it is. But at the same time, we have to be inclusive in the way we program. The second someone says, I don't go to the Wheeler Centre because that's not for people like me, they don't agree with me, then we failed in our um, somewhat idealistic but
8: Mm.
1: kind of heartfelt mission.
8: What do you think is the balance? I mean, what does a utopian Melbourne city look like?
1: I genuinely think the most utopian notion that has come up again and again tonight, and I have great faith in it, greater faith than I have in just about anything else, is the idea of community and diversity of communities. And part of the reason, I mean, coming back to the failure of newspapers again for a second, one one of the ways in which I think conventional media has failed is that it's failed to keep track of the fact that people no longer... Congregate under a single masthead, if in fact they ever did. You know, once upon a time you could easily be identified as I'm an age reader or I'm a Herald Sun reader or whatever. Whereas actually as our options for where we get our media, where we get our news have diversified, you're much more likely I don't know about anyone else, but my primary news source when I wake up in the morning is I go to Twitter and the people who I trust Mm -hmm. to curate what they're reading from all around the world have given me links to things and I follow that and I go down the rabbit hole and that's the thing. I curate my own media landscape and I pick and choose my own part of it. And that is I think in the world of news and media an expression of what's true in the world of our communities to which we belong. Which is we belong to a multitude of communities. These are the people who I talk about books with and these are the people who I you know have a kick of a soccer ball in the park with or I say that like I still do it it has been a good 10 years since I last did any f- physical exercise but once upon a time there was a separate community I belonged to that did that um you know this is my work community this is my home community this is my family these are my neighbors these are the and it's possible to belong to this kind of multiplicity of communities and that seems to me to be the way to understand the cities that we live in and the way to understand how we affect real change mm. is to not just limit ourselves to the views within one of those communities but to see the interesting kind of complicated venn diagram to which we belong and constantly try and push outwards in the things we talk about and the ways we do
8: it mm. absolutely as you were speaking there about venn diagrams and different communities just the image came to mind of um the rainbow serpent because One of the things that um, Eric Wilmot, this is Australia's first black professor um, up at James Cook University, ironically, um, he um, is a professor of education and he wrote a a small book called The Last Social Experiment. And in it, he said that every society on Earth has, every continent on Earth has had a go at race relations and humans understanding each other um, and interacting but not quite got it right. And that Australia might be the last chance on earth to get that right. And, you know, so far we haven't done so well. But um, maybe we have and maybe the opportunity is there. And just as you're speaking about the Venn diagram um, and diagrams interacting, is the image comes to mind of all different colours and multipolarity, that it doesn't have to be one or the other.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, and it's really hard to live up to. I think when things are hard, when we feel adrift, when we feel... um, pessimistic and anxious about the world that we live in, it's very natural to revert to the communities that reinforce the things that we want and the things that we need. And it's why I do think the notion of being activist is such an important one. Because, and, and also why, for me, and I'm going to say this because I'm a book nerd, reading outside my comfort zone yes. becomes a really important expression of, um, of making my intellectual endeavour not solipsistic and actually about the kind of society I want to contribute to, mm. is about that thing of constant education, kind of constant endeavour to kind of get to the bottom of something that I
8: mm.
1: I don't know. The other thing, I mean, there's this great, of all people to quote, Abraham Lincoln quote, where he said, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate for the stormy present. Mm. And I've always really liked that idea, partly because... I love the idea that the past is quiet, where everything else that we learn teaches us, that, oh, no, they were difficult times, or rah, rah. But, but that thing of the constant kind of pressure of history and the way in which, as things change, old dogmas become useless. They, they become, you know... The present is always stormy. There's always challenges against us. Mm-hmm. And dogmatism's you know, has no place in that. We have to kind of approach it... Reading more, learning more, wanting to hear more. That seems interesting and useful to me. Mm.
8: Comes back to the connection, doesn't it?
1: Yep, it does. Mm. And on that note, I think I'm going to declare the relay over. Ladies and gentlemen, a big thank you for our extraordinary speakers. <clears throat> and a big thank you to the M Pavilion and its curators. It is only the second year this pavilion has been here and it already feels like a fixture that goes a long way towards making Melbourne a little more utopian. It sits in stark contrast, and this isn't a criticism of the building opposite, but to that kind of edifice. The idea that something can come up, that it can be nimble, that it can be responsive, that it can be experimental and then it can be gone, moving on to another place and something else stands in its place. And I think that's something we can all get behind and be very excited about and be very grateful to the people who made it possible. There's nothing more utopian than true cultural philo- philanthropy, and I think Naomi Milgram and her team do that in spades. So a big round of applause for the empathy <clears throat>